0: You may have heard the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, it's a beautiful song, and you might even know some of the story behind how it was composed. In 1883, Horatio Spafford, um, 1873, I'm sorry, Horatio Spafford, he was a lawyer in Chicago. He had a wife, and uh, they originally had five children, unfortunately, um, their little son died as a baby but he was sending his uh, wife and four daughters on a ship to Europe. They were going to take some time of rest and spend some time with friends um, after working really hard for several years. Um, And in a last-minute decision, he had to send them ahead, and he had to stay back to deal with some emergency business endeavors on the other side But he would follow a few days later. Unfortunately, the ship that his wife and daughters were on uh, collided with another ship, and the four daughters ended up drowning. Um, Anna, his wife, was rescued by a rescue boat, and she made it to Europe. And she sent a telegram that's now pretty famous back to her husband, saying, saved alone, what shall I do? So Horatio got on a, a ship to go meet his grieving wife. And as the story goes, as they were passing over the part of the ocean that it was said that the daughters had drowned, he composed a poem that would then be set to music, that would be the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. The opening verse is, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. I understand if there are some different reactions to something like that. I mean, I'm sure on one hand, most of us can appreciate the beauty and uh, be thankful that he was able to find respite in a time of such sorrow and tragedy. Um, But I also understand maybe if you hear that and you think, you know, I'm going through some things in my life, and if I were to write a poem about it, it would come out a lot more colorful. And uh, maybe not, you know, maybe the words it is well aren't true. Maybe actually you are in a place where you need space to say, you know what? It's, it's not well. It's not well with my soul. And if you're not there now, maybe you know of a time in your life when you were there. I think sometimes tragedy and struggle are even harder for religious folks than non-religious folks because we kind of come to the table with some expectations of how life is supposed to go and how things are supposed to operate. And if we really boil that down when when something happens that shakes that and shakes us out of how we thought it was supposed to look, it kind of comes down to two misconceptions. It kind of reveals two misconceptions that I think are, are pretty prevalent. The first one would be, I have a relationship with God, so nothing too bad will ever happen to me. I mean, I pray, I read my Bible, I help others, I serve others. So, I'm I'm doing everything right, and I'll get good things in return, right? I won't have to maybe go through quite the suffering that other folks might go through. Or maybe the other misconception, which is not unique to religion, is once I get blank, then I'll be content and satisfied. Uh, Maybe it's a job, maybe it's the house, maybe it's moving to a new city, maybe it's the spouse, maybe it's kids, whatever it is. There's a thing in the future, and once I get that, then maybe this kind of turmoil, or angst, or emptiness, or longing that's inside of me will, um, will finally go away. What's interesting, if you study um, developed countries versus non-developed countries, or developing countries, you might think that the suicide rate would be higher in countries in, that are not quite developed because there are fewer resources, there's more stress, Um, every day is, is harder in a developing country than in a developed country. What's interesting when they actually looked at the data was that suicide rates are by far the highest in developed countries, and specifically, they're the highest in countries and even in individual states within the United States where other markers of life satisfaction are the highest and where they are thriving economically. I think if we dig into that a little bit, we might find that people are plagued by a loss of meaning when they feel empty and don't know why they feel empty. From all external factors, they feel like they should be happy. And maybe our religious teaching has contributed to this. Maybe we've kind of talked about God as if he's a genie or if he's formulaic and we can know how things are supposed to go and we give our part of the transaction and then God will give his part of the transaction. And I'm not saying God's not dependable and reliable, but maybe we've kind of looked at spirituality and the divine as a kind of a vending machine. And so when something happens that throws us out of our framework, we, not only do we experience the hardship we're actually going through, but then we experience kind of the terror and the shock and the pain of a paradigm shift that we didn't, we didn't want and we didn't ask for. It can leave us feeling confused, frustrated, and maybe the most potent one is kind of feeling abandoned. I mean, these don't seem like things that we're supposed to feel as church people, right? Or people who know God or at least felt like we knew God. And one way to think about it is this might be a marker that you have found yourself in the wilderness, figuratively, um, but sometimes literally too. And when you're in a wilderness situation, you feel lost and alone, unsure of the future, you're on totally uncharted territory, you don't have a map, Um, it feels like danger is all around you, you don't know where where you can step or who you can trust sometimes, and you're not even sure that you have the tools to make it out. I mean, the framework that used to work for you doesn't work for you anymore. And you are leaving one thing, but you have no idea what the next thing is. But the thing is, there's actually a lot of stories of the wilderness in Scripture: um, children of Israel, Joseph, Moses, Hagar, Elijah, David, Job, John the Baptist, Jesus and Paul and those are that's just a short list had transformative wilderness experiences. And in addition to the ones from Scripture, several of the leaders throughout history and church history um, who would go on to lead and carve out the direction of the church had times where they felt totally confused and even abandoned themselves. Distraught. I mean, this is from the Bible. This is Psalm 22. I'll read you this verse. It's uh, 1 and 2 of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. And this is David. This is the guy that slayed Goliath. And let me tell you, I've seen a lot of teachings in Bible studies about the slaying of Goliath. But I haven't seen a lot of Bible studies on these verses. It's interesting that this... That first phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is what Matthew records as Jesus cries out on the cross, and maybe that should pique our interest a little bit. Here's another psalm of David, Psalm 42. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? You know, it's interesting that last line, as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but if, if you're secure in yourself, what other people say doesn't really bother you too much. But if someone says something that makes you react really uh, vehemently, that's maybe not typical to your character, it kind of points, maybe there's like an insecurity in you that they're poking at. Um, and, and, and you have to look inward to see that. And so if his foes were taunting him, where is your God? That, that probably bothered him because he was saying, yeah, where is, where is God? Where are you, God? Can you imagine if a church had those verses in their About Us section of their website? People were searching for churches to go to, and that's the defining verse that they chose. We can take it even a little further and, and look at Jesus uh, right before... He was betrayed to his crucifixion. This is Matthew 26, 36 through 38. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. If you know the story, Jesus cried out three times to avoid the pain and humiliation that awaited him if it was at all possible. But if it couldn't be avoided, he said he would surrender. And Jesus was not granted a magic way out. The only way out for him would be through. And his closest friends would desert and betray him. Figures in Scripture going into the wilderness could be an entire teaching of its own, but they're frequently marked by cries of lament, confusion, abandonment, and anger. Both Job and Jeremiah cry out that they wish they'd never been born. But if you look ahead, spoiler, they did find the strength to keep going. So these same stories from Scripture and from tradition... We often only look at from our perspective, from the deliverance, from the resolution that came from it. But maybe that's to our own disadvantage. Maybe that leaves us thoroughly unprepared for seasons of lostness in our own lives. Maybe we think we can kind of skip right to the answers and to the resolutions without going through the transformation process that gets us there. Another way it's been talked about is a dark night of the soul. If you spend enough time in the wilderness, And in that quietness, you very well may come into a time that others have called the dark night of the soul. That's a term that comes from St. John of the Cross in the 16th century in a poem that he wrote. It's a season when everything else that used to comfort you just doesn't comfort you anymore, whether it's secular things or even religious things. An author that I really like, Richard Foster, writes in the book called Celebration of Discipline in a chapter on Solitude, Cultivating Solitude, He says this To take seriously the discipline of solitude will mean that at some point or points along the pilgrimage, we will enter what St. John of the Cross vividly describes as the dark night of the soul. The dark night to which God calls us is not something bad or destructive. On the contrary, it is something to be welcomed as much as a sick person might welcome a surgery that promises health and well being. The purpose of the darkness is not to punish or afflict us, but to set us free. What does a dark night of the soul involve? We may have a sense of dryness, aloneness, even lostness. Any overdependence on emotional life is stripped away. The notion often heard today that we should always live in peace and comfort, joy and celebration, only betrays the fact that much contemporary experience is surface slush. The dark night is one of the ways God brings us into a hush, a stillness so that God may work an inner transformation upon the soul. We are handed so many paradigms and assumptions about God and life and ourselves and others as we grow up, and inevitably, some of these will be helpful and true, and some of them won't be. But there is no way to step back and have the distance necessary to practice discernment about those assumptions and prejudices that we've kind of unconsciously absorbed just by growing up, unless we submit to a time of quietness and surrender and kind of empty everything out and then take a look at it and see what fits back in. I kind of think about it like a, like a factory reset on a computer. right? So you download programs as you're using them, and some of them are helpful, and then some of them you don't need anymore. But eventually, they just start slowing everything down and taking up all the memory. And you kind of have to clear it all out and then you can kind of take them back one by one and reinstall the ones that you really need. Another way I've heard it talked about is that the wilderness is not, about int- is not about punishment. It's about intimacy. I think this perspective is really good and needed, the perspective that suffering and lostness can often lead to a recalibration and even a transformation, and I think that's deeply important. And we need more teachings about the process of the struggle and not just the solutions. Because when we're in it, we can't see the hindsight. We can only see where we are, and we don't even know which way is forward yet. But still, I don't want to sanitize what it's like when everything falls apart, because it's horrible. It really is. And if you combine a faith crisis or a dark night of the soul with other life hardship or tragedy, that can be so hard and so dark. You might come to a point of rock bottom. Rock bottom is where you can't go down that path anymore. It's not working. Uh, For me, personally, that's the only experience I can really talk about. My rock bottom felt like um, everything that I was good at, everything that I had um, used to kind of give myself self-worth or measure my self-worth was gone. It was taken away from me. I felt like I wasn't, I wasn't a leader anymore. I wasn't a facilitator. I had lost my core community. I was riddled with guilt and shame. And that's the rock bottom that I found myself in. And in that place, when everything kind of, I was really good at running from the pain and the emotions for a while. And then when I lost the energy to do that, everything kind of crashed in. And I had no choice but to sit with it. And this might sound weird, but it kind of, sounded, it kind of felt like um, everything from my framework of thinking kind of told me that there wasn't any objective greater purpose for my body to function anymore, for for me to have life. But as I sat in that place and let let it crash over me finally, I realized I was still breathing my air. My my lungs were still taking in air. My heart was still beating. It kind of felt like my body was betraying me, but life was still happening. My deepest fears were realized, but they didn't kill me. Life was still working in my body, even if the framework for how I thought life was supposed to work didn't. And so I wish I could say that then I came to one magic thing that made everything better all of a sudden, but that's just not how it was. It was a tedious trudge for a long time of putting one foot in front of the other. But eventually, little by little... I came to perspective of a new world view that accounted for the hard things and didn't require me to sweep them under the rug. It, It allowed them to be brought into the light and given voice. I found a new sense of normal, which, when I was in the thick of it, I never thought that I would feel normal again. And I, little by little, found pieces of solid ground. So it's not that I stopped wrestling, but I think I just learned how to wrestle forward. As Winston Churchill said, if you're going through hell, by all means, keep going. And I want to share a mindset that really helped me to do that, um, To require, and it, it doesn't require much religious or supernatural framework to, um, to kind of absorb this view that maybe is just kind of the visual image that you need to start putting things in motion towards a place of health and hope. It doesn't require a lot of, a lot of faith, necessarily, um, but it, just, it does require just the relinquishing of our cynicism, kind of the, the audacity to believe that things maybe could get better. And so it's wrapped up in this. Life is coded to thrive in the right environment. In the very blueprint of life, in our very DNA, we are coded to heal and to thrive with the right environment. We know this is true of plant life and animal life. If you have a good seed and it has the right soil and nutrients and sunlight and water, it's going to grow appropriately. And same thing with baby animals. But is the same true for human life? And especially what about when we start talking about like, the spiritual, like the inner life? If given the right ingredients, the right environmental factors, can we thrive and can we heal? I'll be honest, I, I didn't know if I believed that in the worst of it. But I kind of just decided that I had to live like it was true. And in the, in the worst of it, I kind of just gave myself a mental picture of if I give myself one year of living as if hope was real, then I'll see where I'm at at that point before deciding to settle or resigning to despair. So I want to share quickly eight elements um, that help cultivate emotional and spiritual health. And I want to be really clear, like, these are not, like, hacks or shortcuts or snake oil to make your life better or something like that. But these, from my journeying, are eight patterns that I've seen reflected with uh, leaders and mystics and survivors that have gone through the wilderness, gone through intense hardship, and come out of it with new life. So these are subjective. They're not comprehensive. You might be able to add several more for your own life. Um, But I just wanted to give even though it kind of sounds like a lot, because for people that are in the darkness, you might need a little bit more of a vision of how to move forward, that you're actually headed somewhere, and that hope is actually possible to start taking those steps. The first one is alone time as a sacred habit. I think it's key when we're developing our inner life to make alone time a safe space and eventually a sacred space. This helps us learn to trust ourselves, so that we can avoid dissociation. That's when we separate ourselves from what we're really feeling or thinking and run away from it. Or distracting or numbing or medicating with things that are not healthy. So for me, cultivating a safe and sacred alone time might involve listening to music, prayer and meditation practices, but especially journaling. And for me, that's really key because It gives me a physical expression. I I just had to decide not to judge myself for what I was thinking or feeling and to get it out on paper. And then I can think about how I want to move forward once I know for myself how I really feel about it. Um, Peter Rollins is an Irish philosopher that I really like, and he describes it this way. He says, the pains that we've gone through, the, the tragedies, the anxieties that we have inside, even our depressions, They're like ghosts inside of us, and if we don't acknowledge them, they actually get stronger and they can work as poltergeists within us. We don't think they're controlling us because we're not looking at them, but they're actually running things behind the scenes. But if we call them out and we look at them for what they are, we can actually turn them into holy ghosts, and they can actually help guide us forward, learning from what we've been through. Alone time as a sacred space gives you what you need to practice true discernment. Um, As we talked about in my last sermon, the amygdala goes crazy when it feels threatened, and the amygdala is a big bully in the brain. It overrides everything else that's going on. So by taking that quiet time to let yourself calm physically and mentally, you can practice more discernment about what's going on and how you want to move forward. Number two is healthy coping mechanisms. I think the first step... Uh, when you're in the thick of it is often just identify your current coping mechanisms and if they're healthy or unhealthy, again, without, without judging yourself and without punishing yourself. And I think how you do that is that you assume that the need underneath your behavior is real. So if you do a certain habit because you're feeling scared or lonely or stressed, grant yourself that that is a real need and then over time, think about healthier ways that you might be able to deal with that. Number three, these are, again, elements that help cultivate emotional and spiritual health, is healthy connection. Alone time does help us become integrated and authentic, but we also need other people. From the time we're born, we have this deep need to see our experiences and our emotions reflected and mirrored back to us from other people. So we need a couple safe spaces to just be totally honest and to walk together with somebody. And if you're in a really tough spot, if you've gone through something particularly difficult or you are lacking community, that might be a time to check out a counselor or a therapist because they are trained to help you have a safe space to start identifying honestly what's going on within you and moving forward in a healthier way. Not all ministers, and in fact most ministers, are not actually trained as counselors. Um, Thomas is a little unique because he is a chaplain for the army, so he's had some extensive training, and he was a huge help to me when I found myself in totally uncharted emotional waters. Um, But that's an important distinction to make, and Thomas himself would be the first one to tell you. If he comes to a point with someone where he says, you know what, that's out of my jurisdiction now, and he will definitely help refer them to someone who can help them further. So just consider seeing a professional if that's something that you need for a while. If you don't like the first one, you don't feel safe, you can go on to another one. Number four, ongoing education. Reading and listening to teachings and just continuing to expand our our view is so healthy for us because it shows us that we don't ever have to stay stuck or stagnant. We can keep growing and adapting and learning. If you've been mistreated, Um, especially in a church context, and you haven't had a lot of examples of healthy relationships, this might be a particular place to focus, uh, to research those kinds of things. Because, unfortunately, church can be one of the worst places that takes a good concept, like forgiveness, for example, and abuses it or sells it short. Um, All of the psychologists that I've read have said how common of an issue it is to tell someone to forgive before they've actually properly grieved what's gone on. And instead of that wound being healed and brought into the light and dealt with, it's kind of just covered over, uh, and we kind of put forgiveness out there as a patch without actually dealing with what happened or making sure that the pattern won't continue in the future. So that's a a good particular place to focus if you've experienced, um, had something negative, especially in a church context. Number five element for... Spiritual and emotional health, creative expression. We talked last time about the divine spark, the image of God, that's within all of us. Um, I think sometimes creativity can get a, a, a bad rap in uh, churchy circles. Um, I know in my own tradition, we were very careful about the words that we used, and I, I appreciate that, but they didn't want us to use the word create because only God can truly create something out of nothing. And I understand that logic, and I, I, kind of, I appreciate the reverence that it conveys, but I believe creativity is part of that image of God that he gave us, that we're, we are to share in and we are to express. I mean, the magic of art is that it tells us that we're not alone, that someone has been where we've been, experienced what we've experienced, and hopefully come out the other side. So art can help us name the pain, and it can, it can help us grieve when we have loss to grieve. I think something comes alive in us when we construct or compose something that didn't exist before. And so we can find ways to have creative expression, especially as we're going through hard times. And I think the key is, like, don't worry about looking silly. You know, Do it in the privacy of, of your own home if you want. Um, but it's not about your audience uh, or accolades. It's, it's just about your soul. It's about the state of your soul. Six would be rituals and reminders. Um, Again, ritual kind of felt like a a loaded word growing up. Like, it somehow meant it was empty or, or overly religious or something. But getting lunch once a week with a friend is a ritual. You know, reading with coffee on Saturday morning is a ritual. Having a constant in our schedule helps keep us anchored when other aspects of life are in transition. And this can be especially important for those of us, like me, who tend to withdraw when we start to feel stressed. Um, and then reminders. They can just be uh, little pieces, whether you write them down or, or something that I like to do is I like to make items. Um, like I, I'll keep an item from an experience that was really positive and meaningful for me. Um, and it kind of creates a neural pathway for your brain. When you're in a tough spot, it brings you back to a time of hope, or love, or healing, or a goal that you've set for yourself. I got baptized last October as kind of a a marker of a fresh start, and I got myself these rings when I was baptized. Um, So I'm not, they're not idols. I don't pray to the rings or anything. It's just a reminder. It it makes a neural pathway in my brain to that time when I realized, you know what, I can have a fresh start. I'm not defined by my mistakes. I'm not defined by by what's been done to me. And I can live with new life in reflection of uh, resurrection. That's what it reminds me of. So I keep things like that around that are shortcuts and are neural pathways to positivity, hope, healing, encouragement. One time I just made a wall of post-it notes of times I knew, even, even if I'm in a place of doubt or questioning, I know that there have been times that I've had divine help that... Stars have aligned to uh, bring me out of a situation or or give me a hand when I needed it. So one time I just wrote them on Post-it notes and stuck them on the wall. I had a whole little map full of them. It was kind of awesome. And number seven element for emotional and spiritual uh, that helps cultivate health is positive perspective. Perspective. So I don't mean like self helpy just, just think positive. What I mean is perspective that honors the fact that you are moving forward and the world is moving forward, not backward. Um, it kind of gives you a, a bird's eye view for a second or, or a perspective on life that's anchored in something more sure and more tethered than how you're feeling in that moment. I don't know if it's common uh, to use Harry Potter as an example in a sermon, but I'm going to do it. Um, <laughs> if uh, if you remember dementors in Harry Potter, there are these if you don't know, there are these um, scary black uh, cloaked deathly creatures that kind of float into an area and when they do they bring chill like it's terribly cold in the area and then it's described as bringing feelings of like hopelessness, like they would never be joyful again. Um, and despair, and all of a sudden, your brain can only think about the negative things that have happened to you when you're in that spot. And I don't think it's an accident. I think JK Rowling knew exactly what she was doing, That that's such a beautiful analogy for depression. You know, Dementors come in, and all of a sudden, you can only see the negative, even if you, even if you don't want to. You're not trying. You're not trying to dwell on the negative. But that's, that's how you feel, and you feel as if you're never going to be hopeful again. Like if you have a stomach bug. And you're like, I don't want food, and I know for certain that I will never want food again. Ever. I'm done eating, that's it. <laughs> but with time and healing, right, we can, we can get back to a place of having appetite. We, we actually can heal from that. And in Harry Potter, the way to uh, fend off from a de- dementor and survive a dementor attack is to dig deep, to hold on to a positive memory, and that allows you to bring forth this Thing of light that uh, keeps the Dementor at bay. I mean, how beautiful is that? Because in that moment, you're anchoring yourself to a time where you realize that what you're feeling in that moment is just one moment. It's not how you always feel, it's not how you've always felt, and therefore, it's not how you will always feel. You can get through it. So I think sometimes when we're in the darkness, we just have to first recognize that this is a time of darkness, but it won't last forever. I've heard it talked about from psychologists and, like, recovered addicts and things like that, um, depression can be seen as positive information for your body and your soul. It can be seen as, as a red flag, as a marker, something speaking up, saying, hey, something's not right, something's off, um, and we need to deal with it, and we need to slow down and deal with it, because how we're going right now is not sustainable, And that way, it it can be a safeguard. Now, I'm not saying there, there are definitely times where there might be biology or chemical imbalances involved, but I'm saying that might not be the only way to look at it. That might not be the first place to start. Medication might not be the first or only place to start. If it's needed, fantastic. But there might be other things that you can do that kind of honor that your body and your soul work together and your mind. And the last element I want to talk about is meaningful service. Um, I, I really believe that meaningless and purposelessness come from feeling that we are incapable of making a positive impact on the world, or for some reason neglect to try. There's this site, they've, I guess they've written books and they have a podcast, but it's mostly like a website um, or a collection of people. It's called 80,000 Hours, if you're interested. And honestly, it's fantastic. I'm super thankful for it. But what it is is a lot of young professionals that have gotten together and said, we're tired of the uh, semantic stuff. Um, it, it has kind of an anti religious vibe to it. And so they're really strong about saying we're going to be evidence based. We're going to be research based about how to have a meaningful life and how to uh, do good in the world, right? So they went through tons and tons of data. And honestly, it, it, it is. It's very compelling. And I'm thankful that they did that. Um, but these are the revelations that they came up with after going through the evidence. We're happiest when we live relatively simply. There's actually no significant increase in happiness after your salary reaches about um, 45000 for a single person or 75000 for a family. There's actually no significant increase in happiness once you're past that point. And to find fulfillment, sustainable fulfillment in your life, you, um, you, you do that best by contributing to making the world better in some kind of significant, impactful way. So they talk about how you can donate well um, or you can volunteer or work for things that make a, a, that relieve suffering or spread compassion or have some kind of really positive impact in the world. Um, and I'm, I'm thankful, like, like I said, I'm thankful that they have done this research and that this resource is available to people. But I kind of want to say like, okay, but that's not, that's not new age wisdom. <laughs> like living simply and pouring out for others that's not New Age. There's actually a lot of ancient teachings and traditions that have contributed to that. I I see other thought leaders that also hold, like, they totally write off all religions and in some ways spirituality, but they talk about how crucial forgiveness um, and mercy are in your life to be be healthy and to have healthy relationships. And I don't mean this critically. I just kind of want to ask them, like, have you heard of these original teachings of Jesus from 2,000 years ago? Um, Have you heard of the kingdom? Like this idea of a hopeful new world where suffering can be relieved and justice can abound? I I just want to kind of point them towards that and say, I'm glad that your evidence led you there, but you're, you're not really the first one to get there. I think it's important to maintain the perspective that life is a gift and our job is to steward it. But I know, I know that in the worst of things, life doesn't feel like a gift. It feels much more like a burden. What I'm saying is that if we can take time to get quiet and maybe reconnect with nature and things like that, and art, we might just sit still for a second and remember that we are on a planet that is the exact size and distance from the sun to hold an atmosphere of exactly the right gases to sustain life. We have a self-replenishing, self-purifying water system we have a built in 24 hour rhythm to life, and we have incredible complexity and beauty in the natural world to enjoy. So maybe thinking about things like that can remind us that life is a gift, even when it doesn't feel like life is a gift. Or another way to think about it for you personally, I mean, how many diaper changes were contributed to bringing you into non infanthood, to bring you out of infanthood? How many meals have been made for you and served for you to reach adulthood? How many school lessons and exercises from teachers all throughout the years and your parents helping with homework or whoever helped you with homework to get you to the point where you can read and write and spell and think and communicate and relate to other people? So I think taking care of our soul is our first priority as adults to stewarding life because we really will thrive when we give ourselves the right elements. For me personally, 2008 and 2017 were by far the two hardest years of my life. They both involved loss and pain and isolation, loneliness. But when I look back, I see that it was 2008 and it was 2017 that gave me the space to actually figure out who I was and what I wanted, to kind of free myself from some really strong tendencies to people please everyone else to my own destruction. They are the years that taught me how to step outside of my comfort zone. They are the years that taught me to practice contentment, even when I don't feel content in the moment. They are the years that taught me strength and endurance and creativity. In the beginning of 2017, when I had first arrived in Bloomington, and it was a real rough transition up here, I found myself in a counseling center in a certain building at IU, kind of just out of desperation. I really just didn't even know which way was up. I was just in a pretty desperate place. In a couple weeks, I'm returning to that same building to start grad school. I'm, I'm not saying that to boast at all. I'm saying that because you don't really know hopelessness unless you've been there, and you felt like there's no way that tomorrow will be better than today, or that I'll be able to get back to a place of adventure and curiosity and motivation. And sometimes in those moments, testimonies speak to us when intellectual arguments and theological arguments just kind of fall flat. What I'm saying is that if you're in the wilderness, it does. It's, it's horrible. It's terrible. But you're in good company if you find yourself there. And I believe that you are coded, that we are all coded in our very DNA to come out of it better and stronger and more compassionate and with more wisdom than when we went in. Maybe, coming back to the song, what's going on is that if our soul is not healthy, even a good life externally can feel empty and meaningless or tragedy can feel totally hopeless. But maybe when our soul is healthy and cared for, we can go through even the hardest things and survive them, and maybe not only survive them, but come out recalibrated and transformed. We don't have to be scared of grief because we know that grief will run its course when we know that it won't last forever. And when we get to the place of learning to listen to what we need, We kind of have this peace come over us because we're finally in a sustainable place. We'll take as much time to rest as we need, but we're moving forward. I think it's possible to get to a place where you say, it is well with my soul, and it's not just some kind of band-aid or covering or uh, sanitizing of what's really going on. So we can wrestle forward. First, for our own mental and emotional health, and then to help bring the kingdom of mercy and justice and radical love to earth. Maybe we don't need to try to save ourselves or our friends from the wilderness, but instead we just need to learn how to walk it well and how to walk it together. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for the opportunity to Gather together and to share stories, how powerful it is to know that other people have walked the places we've walked, they've been through the things that we've been through. God, if we're in a time of the wilderness right now, help us to understand that if there is breath in our lungs, our story is not done. Show us that you are a way maker. That's what people have been saying about you for thousands of years. A lot of us don't see a clear way right now. So help us to wrestle in the right direction. Help us to stop and breathe and appreciate every once in a while how far we've come so far. Help us to trust and see how we are wired and coded to move towards health if we give ourselves the right ingredients, the right environment to do so. Help us to love each other well and be safe spaces for each other. God, give us today what we need because we know that tomorrow you'll do the same thing for tomorrow, and the next day you'll do the same thing for that day. I just thank you for everyone here and anyone who might be listening online or watching again later. In Jesus' name, amen.